Welcome to the Becoming Your Best podcast. We're here to provide you and your team with the resources, tools, and content to achieve your greatest potential. For those interested in additional resources or services, such as the weekly planners, online planners for Chrome or Outlook, keynotes, live training, coaching, or certification, you can visit our website at becomingyourbest.com. Now, when you listen to an episode that resonates with you, we invite you to share it with your family, friends, and team members so that they can experience the same type of motivation and results in their lives. Also, if you haven't already subscribed, please hit the subscribe button. It works on Apple, Stitcher, Google, or whatever platform you're using so that you can get a new podcast reminder each week. Now sit back, let's get started, and we hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to our Becoming Your Best podcast listeners, wherever you may be in the world today. This is your host, Steve Schallenberger, and we have a very gifted guest with us today. He grew up in a culture and family immersed in self-exploration, psychoanalysis, psychology, growth and change, science and curiosity. Early on, he felt a desire to become a therapist, before that a scientist. And as he grappled with his own challenges and inner forces, he followed a meandering path from physics to psychology, from surgery to psychiatry, and ultimately entering psychoanalytic training and private practice in 2002. And with over 20 years in private practice, he's developed a creative results-driven approach to help his patients understand themselves identify and break down limiting patterns and realize their most fulfilling and complete potential. And it is his personal mission to help others and through this change the world for good. And that is why we are going to get along so well. Welcome, Dr. Grant Brenner. Oh, it's a pleasure to see you. And please call me Grant. And I'd love to meet that guy you described. He he sounds pretty good, actually. Well, we're going to have a lot of fun stuff to visit with our listeners uh, over today. And before we get started, I'd like to tell you a little bit more about Grant. In this pursuit, Dr. Brenner is the co-founder and former CEO of Neighborhood Psychiatry and Wellness. Uh, He is a board-certified psychiatrist and psychotherapist at a private practice in New York City and an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science for Mount Sinai, Beth Israel. He is an entrepreneur, author, teacher, speaker, and not-for-profit board member based in Manhattan, New York. So I've been really excited to get into this. He's written a number of books. Here are just a few of them. Ear Relationship, is that how you pronounce that, Grant? Absolutely. Perfect. How we use dysfunctional relationships to hide from intimacy, relationship sanity, creating and maintaining healthy relationships, and the most recent sequel, Making Your Crazy Work for You, From Trauma and Isolation to Self-Acceptance and Love. So uh, let's jump into this, Grant. Tell us, if you don't mind, about your background, including any turning points in your life, and how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, 
I grew up in suburban New Jersey in a, a well-resourced community. Came from a family with a fair amount of adversity in the family. I'd say that the sort of most obvious thing is that my mother was ill from when I was quite young, uh, probably about a year old, and passed away when I was nine after kind of a, a grueling battle with cancer. Um, I have a sibling with a significant developmental disability who's an older sibling. And I, I had some thankfully non-life-threatening, but significantly painful medical problems, orthopedic problems as a kid. And I was a little bit of an outlier, as as you may figure out from, from my biography. Even as a kid, I was had plenty of friends, but definitely not a mainstream kid. And I did experience a fair amount for a while of bullying and teasing, which certainly taught me a lot about compassion and leadership and just how to be a decent person. And I through I think a combination of I think external support and also my own assertiveness, you know, stopped that bullying early in junior high school. And I grew up in a very intellectual environment. My stepmother, who my father married when I was eleven or twelve, had a few PhDs in a number of different fields and was my fifth grade English teacher. And she really it enriched me tremendously. I remember one summer I went away on an exchange program to live in Brazil. And I ended up living with a surgeon and his family. It turned out that they had wanted an American exchange student so he could practice medical English. So we talked about surgical oncology for an hour every day. And it was a very, very interesting cultural experience. But what happened was it was in the in the mid 80s and all the people my age sort of I didn't know this was going to happen. But in the middle of the summer, like a couple of weeks into my exchange program, they all just vanished because they had to study for state exams. And so I ended up spending a lot of time with the other kids in, in the surgeon's family who were a bit older. That was fun. I ended up going to a weightlifting gym, kind of like a gold's gym. It was in southern Brazil. So don't think like Rio, think sort of like northern Italy type of terrain. And I was pretty bored. So my stepmother sent me a huge box of books. And they were things like um, Goidel Escher Bach is a famous book by uh, Douglas Hofstetter and The Mind's Eye, which is about consciousness philosophy. And I was reading all this anthropology. And I think even at a younger age, I had started reading Freud and Jung uh, kind of synopses that I you know, found in the bookstore in the mall. And so I, I was really processing a lot of what had happened as a kid and spent a lot of summers studying and working and kind of thinking through things. Not sure if I answered your question, but you know this was gives you a flavor of what it was like for me. And I was also very much into computers and complexity science, and I read tons of science fiction and literature. I just you know played video games as well. So um, it was a pretty diverse experience in suburbia, anyway. What a background, Grant. I mean, in other words, what you're saying just the run of the mill childhood. <laughs> yeah, I don't I didn't I'm, I didn't I'm have, joking. It's wow, true. what what yeah. a background. What a way to get thinking about life. We're gonna have a lot of fun talking about that in our interview and how that's impacted you. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, especially in what you're doing today. I can't wait to hear about some of your thoughts. One of the things that you've talked about and worked on is something called graphs. And what is the graphs assessment and how can we use it? And how could it be a benefit to us? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, I'm talking about my background and it's very complex, right? There's many, 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 many layers. You know, the human mind is very complex and 
So how do we make sense of it? So in our ear relationship model, we came up with a simple mnemonic, like a shorthand, which is grafts for common childhood patterns. And these are things that kids would typically do when their parents are not there for them in some kind of way. And these are behaviors that I'll spell out in a second that are designed to accommodate or adapt to parents who aren't fully available as secure attachment figures. And so grafts stands for, and imagine this is a kid who's trying to be all these things in order to kind of keep their parents happy. Uh, what one of my co-authors, Mark Borg, calls a human antidepressant. Grafts is good, right, absent, funny, tense, and smart. So being good is, you know, being a good boy, like making sure you do your chores, like not causing trouble. Being right is families where there's a lot of litigating, right? People will argue over who's right and who's wrong, correcting each other. That can certainly backfire later on in life, as can all of these things. Being absent is like staying out of the way. Dad is in a bad mood tonight. Let's just avoid him. And that's how you keep a person from getting angry, right? The kid is doing the parenting work. It's called parentification. Being funny, right? Everyone knows the entertainer. I think about Jim Carrey. If you look at his interviews, he talks about learning his skills as a comedian growing up. And, you know, that's an experience I had. I, I did. I'm not as good as Jim Carrey, of course, but I did a lot of imitations and accents. And I still like to joke. People do sometimes ask me if I do stand up. The last two are tense and smart. Tense is just walking on eggshells all the time, which is a way of like, say, mirroring an anxious mother. Kids do that. Kids are kind of emotional echo chambers, you know, as are grownups significantly, though as grownups, we can learn to bound that. And the last one is smart, right? Getting good grades, being smart. I was inclined in that direction, hence, you know, all the reading. And having older siblings too, I would pick up their textbooks and I remember reading their science, their sixth grade science books when I was in second grade and reading about static electricity in ancient Greece and just loving stuff like that. But it's also a way to protect oneself. You know, you can find solace and companionship in, in reading as well, of course. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you use the assessment? What age should take this assessment? What's the purpose of it? And how would it be helpful? Yeah, so the grafts, most of our books are designed for a motivated self-help reader. And so if you look through the structure of all of the books, it's organized as a hybrid of an instructions psychoeducation, as they call it, clinical illustrations like fictionalized case studies drawn on real clinical experiences, you know, no confidential information is shared. And then at the end of each chapter are exercises. So it's a hybrid between a, a self-help book and a self-help workbook. And then typically the person reading through it would keep their own journal. We encourage people to keep their own notes and the exercises are quite structured. And grafts is just one part of them. The, the basic framework, it starts with education, self-knowledge, and this is supported by research. Sort of this is a user's manual for the human mind. It's in a trauma-focused theory, but we talk about trauma. We talk about normal developmental experiences, attachment theory, some neuroscience, some biochemistry, social psychology, cognitive psychology. We really try to give a 360 digestible view of psychology. and then. The other thing we start with is self-compassion because a self-compassionate stance will enable learning and curiosity and kindness toward oneself actually has very positive effects on the brain. 
that helps people get out of their stuck patterns, right? And then we go into kind of more structured things. Grafts is one of them. Grafts is a way of structuring like developmental ideas because it's just a list of patterns basically. And then we would tell people like, okay, which of these do you recognize in yourself? When have you used them? And what might you do different? And so that's similar to cognitive behavioral therapy. That one example of how an exercise would use the grafts framework. And, And then there's other tools beyond that as well. Okay, great. That's a good background on it. Thank you for taking the time. And is there a, a way that people can find that, the graphs? Where would they find it? So we don't have it formatted, though it would be a good idea, and we've talked about it, of having that as a kind of an online assessment tool. Right now, you can find it on our Psychology Today blog. If you uh, search on Psychology Today for ear relationship or relationship sanity and graphs, there's a number of good descriptions. and sometimes on our social media, and of course, in the books. It's in every book in detail. Right. So, well, this is helpful, though. It's helpful. I'm glad you went through it and what each one meant. So the idea is you go through, assess what might be a strength for you or something that you ought to watch out for so that you have good mental health and that it contributes to greater happiness as you're working on these things. Yeah, it gives good self-knowledge. And as I said, there could be a table where you go through specific examples, but I can give a specific example of something that sometimes can work and sometimes can backfire. Let's say being good, like being very agreeable, being a people pleaser. That can be a huge strength in personal relationships and professional relationships, but it can also be a downside because it's hard sometimes for people to say no, or they don't want to cause problems So they keep something important to themselves and then find out later that they ought to have said something, say it's a work issue that they anticipated, but didn't want to upset someone. So they kept quiet. And so being agreeable, you know, is a pro and a con. People who are agreeable tend to do better in life as a personality trait, but people who are too agreeable can be taken advantage of or can self-silence. Yeah. Okay. Well, these are very interesting. Like the right you described, that's where... People are saying, well, maybe an argument or a discussion about ideas and and then getting into thought of really being more curious and being a good listener rather than right and wrong and trying to discover and understand, I I would presume. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's why we have this compassion-based focus, because that applies to oneself and to other people. And if you're a compassionate listener, then you know you you see the whole landscape. It, it encourages something that psychologists call mentalization, which is being able to see things from multiple perspectives, both from your point of view as well as from other points of view. And yeah, being right sometimes is really helpful. If you're a litigation attorney, that can be helpful. If you need to stick up for yourself in the boardroom, that can be helpful. If you argue all the time over little things, not going to be helpful. <laughs> So you have to know um, how to pick and choose, right? And that's a higher level type of executive function than getting locked into one behavior. The problem is when people get locked into a developmental pattern, which we call brain lock in our books, and they become stuck and they keep using the same approach when it's not the right one. You, You know how that goes, right? Yeah, very interesting. Very good. Thank you for taking a couple more minutes on these because there'll be a transcript of this podcast, people can actually look at the acronyms, what they mean, and and be thoughtful about how they impact our lives. Let's just talk about trauma for a minute. How can one use their trauma for good? I mean, nobody really likes it, but 
unfortunately, in the course of life, we all experience it. So how can you use trauma for good? That's a great question. And, and it, is, it is good to have a transcript because a lot of these ideas you're not going to get on one pass. And yeah. I know we live in the age of sort of too long, didn't read, but <laughs> we know there are some things that take time. And trauma is one of those things. It's such a complicated subject. And it means so many different things to so many people. So if you look at the trauma literature, then trauma, you know, you'll see it has objective and subjective definitions, meaning that you can kind of measure trauma, like how many adverse child experiences did someone have? There's an ACEs scale that's quite famous now. And then people can have something that to one person didn't seem like a big deal, but to another person is something they are just struggling with. The way to make use of trauma most effectively, and and I, I agree with you, I don't think anyone wants trauma. And of course, I'd never recommend that anyone seek trauma in order to gain wisdom. I think that would be quite unhealthy. Amen. If you're, yeah. Right? <laughs> we've, got, we've all got plenty of it. We don't need to seek it out. <laughs> yeah, and, and yet it's, an, it's a slightly different topic. And yet people do tend to repeat trauma. And that's a different subject. And why would that hmm. be? Or they sometimes seem to gravitate toward it, you know, such as people who get into, quote unquote, bad relationships over and over again. Intellectually, you don't want it, but you keep sticking your hand in the flame. One of the things that's helpful in thinking about how to work with trauma is Yes, to have that compassionate mindset and a growth mindset. And two concepts that come up there are resilience and post-traumatic growth. Resilience is well-studied. People with early trauma or, or even trauma later in life do better if they have resilient responses. Hmm. And res resilient responses are pretty well understood on, on a kind of a research level. In terms of actually trying to do the, the things that encourage resilience, that requires kind of planning and trauma can interfere with planning. Trauma can kind of take over the brain, right? And that's part of why people repeat stuff. And then post-traumatic growth is a related but newer concept that goes alongside resilience, which is when and how do people generate wisdom from adversity? It doesn't always happen and it doesn't always need to happen. How can our listeners, how can people cultivate a resilient response, a healthy, resilient response. What are some yeah. of your thoughts on that? So there's resilience factors that you can that you can modify or quote unquote control, and they're ones that are more innate. So it's good to have a sense of how intrinsically resilient you are. So that's good to be having that baseline. And you approach that with a kind of a, a positive coaching attitude, not a looking for faults. Some people are just prone to anxiety. People who have a neurotic personality have some genetic differences. The modifiable traits are the ones we can work on, the ones we can change. You can learn optimism. So you can train up optimism. That's a kind of a cognitive approach. You can do that through different kinds of meditation, including compassion-based and gratitude-based medications. You can cultivate cognitive flexibility through practice, essentially slowing down and considering multiple possibilities. Optimism and, and cognitive or mental flexibility go hand in hand. Taking care of oneself physically promotes resilience. So sleep, social activity, eating properly, exercise, doing recreational activities, uh, using distractions that are generative. All those things are really helpful. Social relationships are particularly important in a specific way for resilience. So building healthy, secure relationships, that can be challenging depending on the nature of the trauma and sometimes not as challenging. So building social networks can be helpful. 
and challenging oneself to learn new things. So that can also promote neural plasticity, kind of growth of the brain or mind. And so it's good to try new things, learn new things, learn a language, take up a new hobby. And a lot of times that will get people unstuck as well and improve mental flexibility. Those are a few things. People can also look up online something called the Resilience Prescription, which is from Dennis Charney, who is, the, I believe, the dean at Mount Sinai and a, a resilience researcher. And it's a really good one-pager. Oh, excellent. That was a great response. I love the things that people can work on that create greater health and ability to leverage and learn from trauma and turn it into something that, you know, that helps us have a better life, a happier life, just because you appreciate it. How about self-identity? What are some practical things that someone can do to develop a healthy, positive self-identity, which is so important for happiness and hope and joy and and really being productive. That's a good question on the heels of resilience. And something that I didn't talk about as much in the resilience piece comes up here as well, which is, well, number one, if there is some kind of trauma, which often is grief or loss, it is important to make room for normal feelings of sadness and the grieving process. And that also ties in with having a coherent sense of self or a good self-identity. And so I think developing that self-identity It starts with self-knowledge. It starts with giving yourself a lot of room to reflect. That mentalization sounds kind of geeky. Self-reflective function is an easier term for that. So you make room for yourself. And I think ultimately the goal is to kind of become your own best buddy, right? People talk about self-parenting. I think that's a part of it. But really, as we get older and we go throughout life, there's one person who's always going to be there with you, and that is you. And so I would encourage people, this is kind of a funny, kind of almost like a hypnotic shift to think of yourself as another person. And a lot of times what we see are people who are down on themselves, treat other people differently and better than they treat themselves. So kind of give yourself the same rights and benefits that you give other people. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I love it. You know, so... Sometimes the person we're hardest on is the one in the mirror. Mm -hmm. Cut ourselves some slack here. We've got a lot of good things in us and and a lot of talents and skills, potential. So you're saying recognize those. And that's part of forming this self-identity, which is good. And a lot of times people think about being compassionate or resilient or kind to themselves as being weak or soft. But treating yourself well often means being firm and holding yourself accountable It's just learning to do it in ways that work better because on average, most people don't respond that well to harsh criticism. It may work for a while, right? There's people who are listening. They're going to say, yeah, but that's what I do. I like, you know, I, I thrash myself and that can work for a while. But for some people, they hit a point where it stops working and then a lot of times they don't quite know what to do because they've they've got these kind of grafts behaviors, right? And then it's time to kind of shift gears, right? And take stock. Right. Well, that's uh, that's terrific, Grant. One of the things we rarely talk about on this show, anyhow, specifically is kind of going a little further in this uh, on what we've been talking about. And that is how can someone find or learn more or be more aware of their personal or professional blind spots? Because we all want to become our best, right? And sometimes we're limited by what we simply don't know. Yeah. 
What's your experience there? How can we become aware of our blind spots and whether they're positive or negative and improve from them? Yeah, I mean, my first answer might not surprise you, but it's ask other people and really listen to their answers. And people will, especially people who are overly self-sufficient, which a lot of people who had tough childhoods learned to be super self-sufficient or counter-dependent is what it's called, will try to figure out their own blind spots by themselves. And then, you know, like you mentioned a mirror earlier, then you're standing there with a mirror trying to see the back of your own head. And that can be helpful. Like therapy can help. There's one person in therapy. Group therapy can help. But right, people do 360s or you talk with friends and loved ones and you make it clear to them that you're really curious, that it's safe for them to tell you what they think. And you want to have guardrails on that conversation so that you know if it starts to get sort of too much, you can kind of say, that's that's good for now. Let me let me take that into consideration. And in our work, we talk about something called the 40-20-40. I don't know if, if you have that in your notes, but it's a communication process that facilitates essentially compassionate speaking and listening. And so the idea here is I get 40% of the airtime. We're not doing this in the podcast as much, but I get 40%, you get 40%, and we get 20%. And the rules are the rules of nonviolent communication. When I speak, I speak from the heart with the goal of being understood from compassion. And when I listen, I listen to understand and not to like formulate my my rebuttal, right? Not to formulate my counter argument. So you can do that kind of 40-20-40 in any conversation or in your own self-dialogue. Who's the 20 and what's the 40 and 40? Go over that one more time so we're sure we've got that nailed uh, down. Thanks. Yeah, I, I tend to rattle stuff off no, really no, fast. I appreciate sure. the- I got it. I'm a little slower sometimes. You're too kind. So the 40-20-40. Now imagine a, a couple, a romantic couple, just for starters, though you could okay. use it with other people. Person A gets 40% of the airtime, of the emotional time, the relationship time. Person B gets 40%, and then they have a middle, which is the 20. And that 20 is like for the relationship. So the relationship in this, by analogy, the relationship is like a pet or a child. The relationship is something that two people need to nurture and cultivate. It could be 18, it could be 35. But the idea is that we're making sure that there's that third as a noun, like the third is the relationship. And that that could be true for 10 people. You know, it doesn't have to add up to 100, you know, every time. Mm -hmm. It it could be like a bigger pie. But that's basically it. You get 40, the listener gets 40, and then the people together get at least 20. That's really, I love it. And We we call it expanding the middle. Right. Okay, that's good. I like it. It gives direction and positive way forward on what you're talking about and recognizes the relationship and building that together. It's just not one or the other. So uh, that's a nice model. It encourages mutuality. Thank you. And you know what? It actually works. And we'll actually use a timer. So you do like three minute turns or five minute turns and you learn so much from doing it because a lot of people, myself included, don't know how long they've been talking. And in couples therapy, they call that like grandstanding, right? Or stonewalling. So this makes sure that everyone has a say. Okay, that's good. Right. You know, I did want to say I'm glad that you brought up blind spots. And, And before we go to this last part in our interview, I'm grateful for the fact that you said, listen, sometimes just inviting others to give feedback. Have you found a comfortable way to start that conversation? 
Because sometimes maybe people are really vulnerable about this, you know, and not always so secure in finding about their blind spots. So any things that tricks of the trade you've learned that help you bring something up? It often takes work to get to that point. So I think starting with someone who you feel very safe with is important. And you can even role play practicing it. And then if you're feeling a little more apprehensive and and you have to you have to do it appropriately, right? You don't want to you don't want to go to the wrong person and ask them to give you feedback. Maybe it's maybe it's not good from an HR point of view. Who knows? But once you decide to do it, I think practicing with someone who's safe, getting their feedback, find what works for you, and also make sure you're in a good state of mind. People are going to be nervous sometimes when they have these conversations, but it becomes muscle memory. What would I say? I'm a spontaneous person, so I, I don't necessarily have something that I would tell everyone to use, but I might work through a different, a few different ideas and see what fits right for someone. But for listeners, let's see, I might say, I'm working on understanding myself better so I can be a better friend, better in the workplace. I understand that it can be hard for people to see all of their own blind spots. Would it be okay with you if I ask you a couple of questions at some point or get your feedback about what it is like to work with me or be in a relationship with me? And so I would start off with something like that. And I think one of the important things to point out here is is to get the person's consent and maybe schedule the actual conversation for later. So we don't want to put people on the spot. We want to kind of say, would it be okay? And then when might be a good time if it is okay? And then you might want to give some more guidance about what particularly you're looking for or just have it be open-ended. Okay, thank you. That is really wonderful advice. Excellent Once again, I'm glad we have the transcript because that's the kind of thing the underline. You say, okay, let me get that down and practice it a little bit and get good with it. And if someone came to you and said that to you, what have you found is the best way to respond? I think in, in a direct, in a psychologically safe, and in a candid but compassion focused way. And I think it's important to start with things that feel perhaps less challenging and do the same kind of thing with the person by the same kind of thing. I mean, check in with them, like ask their consent. How, well, one thing I've noticed is that sometimes you don't let other people speak. How do you feel about that? What do you make of that? I have a few other observations. You know, Would you like me to share them with you? And then it might require more than one conversation or it might be quicker or you might say, would you like me to send you an email, you know, with some of this feedback so you can, you know, and so on and so forth. So for me, like it's always kind of a concierge process, but it's always based in mutual respect, safety, kindness, honesty, and ongoing consent. Excellent. Thank you. Well, I'm always amazed how fast these uh, interviews go. We're at the end. Any final tips you'd like to provide for our wonderful listeners here today? I think the main thing that I like to remind people of, and and not in a kind of um, a superficial way, is, is something like I would call deep self-care, which is really grounded in, again, compassion for oneself and others. And people who didn't have the greatest experiences growing up, if they were mistreated or neglected, they often carry that with them. And so learning to have like a rational amount of self-compassion, number one, isn't weakness actually tends to make people stronger through their ability to deal with their vulnerabilities and their strengths. 
but also updates the operating system, you know, like a computer metaphor. So if you have like a self-blame operating system, compassion-based practices can can be like a, you know, like an update. All right, nice. Well, this has been a delight. So this is Dr. Grant Brenner, and tell us how people can find out about what you're doing. Oh, great. Thank you. I'm on social media. My Instagram and Twitter is at Grant H. Brenner, MD. And then my website is www.granthbrennermd.com. And there's a resources page that lists those books. And if you Google my name, you'll get a bunch of things. And then my Psychology Today blog is called Experimentations. I've got over 12 million views now and approaching 300 posts. And it ranges anything from uh, talking about trauma-informed work to reviewing neuroscience research to talking about how to deal with things like self-blame. Oh, well, these are important subjects for all of us, especially in the pathway of becoming your best, which is so hopeful. And how nice to have resources like you, someone that's really thought about it and really deeply researched it and being willing to share with others. So it's been a delight to have you on the show today. Oh, thank you, Steve. It's a real pleasure talking with you. And I can't wait to get your book. It sounds amazing. We scheduled pretty quick, so I will read it and learn from it, no doubt. Oh, you're so gracious. What a delight to have you here today. Thank you. A pleasure meeting you. Take care. All right. You bet. And to all of our listeners, we're so grateful for you. We honor you. We're privileged to have you join this show and wish you the best in your pathway of becoming your best. And blessing your life and other people. This is Steve Schallenberger, your host, signing off. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Becoming Your Best podcast. If there was something in this podcast that you felt would be helpful for a family member, a friend, or even a coworker, we invite you to share this podcast with them now while you're thinking about it. Also, remember to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Now, for additional resources and tools, such as how to join our monthly peak performance coaching program, or how to get certified as a trainer or coach, or schedule a workshop or keynote, you can visit our website at becomingyourbest.com. We're here to provide you and your team with the resources, tools, and content to achieve your greatest potential. So thank you for listening, and have a wonderful day and a great week.